0: Well, once again, it's good to be here. Back at Holy Trinity, I think this is the third or fourth time this year. I've been here, but some pastors I know, I don't think they care too much for cold weather. I know some pastors who said they were going to be in Connecticut in January, and, and they never did show up in, in in Connecticut in January. I don't much blame them. I don't want to be in Connecticut in January either, but... <coughs> So maybe this year we'll get him up there in uh, in January again. So anyway, well, let's start off with a word of prayer. Y'all be seated. Let's start off with a word of prayer. Make sure we're in fellowship with the Lord. So I always like to have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary. And then we will start into a study of the word and how to claim promises. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this church, for the witness of Holy Trinity Missionary Baptist Church and the witness and testimony of its pastor, Richard Rose. Father, we thank you for their devotion to your word, his faithful desire to communicate the truth of your word and to learn how to dig into your word to be able to accurately teach and express that which you have revealed to us. Father, we thank you for the witness of this congregation. And their desire to have sound biblical teaching in an age when there are so many who want to to just tickle the ears just to have entertainment and just to come to church and go away feeling good without taking the time to truly understand what your word says. So, Father, we thank you for this church, for the opportunity to study this week, to get into your word, and to learn more about how we can grow as believers through using Your Word as we face crises and difficulties, challenges in our lives. Pray that You would challenge us with what we learned this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Last night we began our study on claiming promises. How to claim promises. The subject this week is called Progress Through Promises because we progress incrementally through the christian life as we utilize the faith rest drill in our life we have to learn to use faith in claiming promises now last night i started with second corinthians five seven which says that it is that we walk by faith and not by sight there's a contrast there between faith and sight and because of that contrast i pointed out last night that what that text is talking about is not faith in the sense of trusting, but faith in the sense of that which we believe, the content of our faith. That the Word of God presents a body of teaching, a body of doctrine, and it is that which we believe. And as Christians, our goal is to learn to think biblically. Our goal is not just to patch up a few holes in the house of our life with a few things from the Bible, But our goal is to completely overhaul that house with the Word of God, and that entails a walk that is that is both based on faith in terms of trusting, but it's not this empty, meaningless, vacuous faith in faith that is so often the the thought of most Christians today often what we find is that the, the poison of human viewpoint infiltrates the thinking of the soul of believers in certain categories of, of fatalism. I remember hearing a statement that when people encounter various trials and traumas in life, they'll say, well, just remember this too will pass if we don't pass first. Now, I'm sure some of you have heard that statement made. But you see, that has nothing to do with the Bible. That just is some sort of faith in some sort of empty, impersonal rule of the universe that somehow if we can just suck it up, pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, toughen up ourselves, that somehow if enough time goes by, we're going to get through this crisis, whatever it is. But you know, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that we have a personal God who is personally involved in each of our lives because his goal is to conform us to the image of his Son, Jesus Christ. And as part of that process of spiritual growth, he is going to allow certain trials and tests, various categories of suffering to come into our lives, to give us opportunities to apply the things we learn at church, to take the Word of God and apply it in that real-life test of day-to-day living. And every decision you make, I want you to think about this. If you understand this, this will revolutionize the way you handle life. See, when we think of tests, we normally think of those big tests, the big monster tests. You lose a job, you lose a loved one, your kid comes home, you find out they're addicted to drugs. Whatever it may be, we think of those as the big tests. But see, the test is each decision we make every day. Because every decision we make throughout the day that involves a choice between God's way or man's way is the test. Are we going to handle this situation whatever it is, no matter how small it might appear to be, God's Word addresses how we should live, act, and think in that circumstance. And so the test is that at that point in time, are we going to exercise our volition and are we going to apply the Word and the principles of the Word in that circumstance and situation Or are we going to do what just comes naturally? And see, what comes naturally may be relatively good, and it may involve overt sin. But it's not an operation where we are depending upon God and His Word and His revelation in our life. And that's what the Scripture says is a walk by faith. Not just trust, but a trust in a body of doctrine, the faith we believe, that that sum total of everything that's taught in the Scriptures. And I said last night that we use faith that way all the time. We talk about the Jewish faith, the Islamic faith, Roman Catholic faith. We talk about the faith of our fathers. That is, those those doctrines, those beliefs that they held near and dear. So when Paul says that we walk by faith and not by sight, what he is saying is we walk by means of a body of truth, a body of doctrine, principles that are embedded, encapsulated, and taught in the pages of the 66 books of the Scripture. Now in those books of the Scripture there are numerous promises. These are categorized and classified numerous ways. You can go down to any bookstore, you can go down to B. Dalton or or any other bookstore around here and you can sometimes pick up a little book for 595 or 695 called Promises in the Bible, and it'll list and categorize all kinds of promises that are contained in God's Word. And these are promises that God has given us for handling various circumstances and situations in life. Now, the way most Christians approach this is they think that, okay, I'm in this situation. As soon as the crisis hits, I'm just going to claim this promise. I'm just going to rehearse this Bible verse or what portion of this Bible verse that I can recall to mind at this particular instant. And when I do so, everything's going to be great. And so we just rehearse that Bible verse and everything's not great. And so we begin to wonder, well, we do it a few times and nothing happens. And we will begin to wonder what, whether God is really there, whether God is concerned about our problems. And, and sometimes we get, like we saw last night with the Jews in Isaiah 40, uh, verse 27, where they're just crying out to God and saying, well, God, are you falling asleep? You, you want to wake up? Have you forgotten about us? Are you just ignoring the problem? Are you too concerned with some world problem in the Middle East? and so you're not concerned about me anymore. And so we begin to wonder if God's really there, and we're missing the point. We have to go through a process where we learn to think biblically to bring our thought to a place of solid rest and firm trust and reliance upon the Word of God. And when we reach the end of this process, there is such a sense of stability in our soul from our understanding, our firm understanding of the Word of God, that the Word of God, the power of God, is more real to us than any circumstance, any situation, any emotional state that we might be in. The Word of God is more real to us than what we're experiencing. And our experience may be horrible. We may be going through things that that would would just tear apart families or tear apart individuals, but because we have a certain conviction of the truth of God's Word, that He is in control, that He has brought this situation into my life for some reason, and we discussed ten of them last night, that there is some reason for this in my life, that if I apply the Word of God and the power of the Spirit of God in my life, then as a child of God, I can mature and grow to the point Where I can glorify God in my life. So we looked at the stages of the faith rest drill, how to claim a promise. And the first stage is simply to claim the promise. To claim the promise means to recall that promise to mind, to rehearse it in our mind, to remind ourselves of exactly what God has said. And I pointed out last night that I am not saying just to sort of remember some abstract principle of doctrine. Now that is, that's good and that's fine if that's all you've got. But remember, and i pointed out examples of Jesus when He is tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Jesus when He's on the cross. He is quoting specific verses from the Bible. The psalmist said, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. It is not simply a matter of memorizing abstract theological principles. As I said, that's great and that's good, and that's the realm of these conclusions that we reach. But the first stage is we have to know the Word of God. God did not give us an abstract theological textbook here. He gave us His Word, and it is the Word of God that is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit, and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It is the Word of God that is absolute truth. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them by means of truth. Thy Word is truth. We have got to be people who know the Word of God who are familiar with the Word of God. We need to be reading the Word of God. We need to be reminding ourselves daily of the promises of God. We need to be rehearsing these things over and over in our minds because we are involved in a battle. It's called spiritual warfare, and it's not that crazy notion of spiritual warfare you see from those heretical televangelists that dominate the airwaves. You see, the place of spiritual warfare is not trying to stop The stuffing out of Satan up in some uh, rah-rah meeting. But the purpose of spiritual warfare is to get you and me to be thinking biblically. See, the battlefield for spiritual warfare is between your ears. And so it's a matter of thinking biblically. So stage one is to claim a promise. And stage two is to think through that promise. Not just to rehearse it in your minds, not just to say it over and over again, but take out a pad and a pencil sometime and write down your thoughts as you're claiming that promise. What are the thoughts in that text? What's the flow of thought inside that text? And that's the main thing that I'm focusing on through these three nights is how we think through those doctrinal rationales that are embedded in the promise. So we have to think through those doctrinal rationales because thinking is the Christian life. The Christian life isn't based on emotion. It's not based on feeling. It's not based on excitement and enthusiasm. That happens sometimes. And that's the result of what God is doing in our life. But remember, in Romans 12:2, Paul said that we are to not be conformed to the world, but to be what? Transformed by the renewing of your emotions. Right? That what, it doesn't say that. What does it say? Transformed by the renewing of your mind. The Greek word there is uh, pronos, which has to do with your our news, has to do with thinking, thinking how you think. And as we were talking today, one of the hardest things about the Christian life is it's not just a matter of picking up some new thoughts; it's a matter of overhauling the whole structure of your thoughts. I said a, a mouthful there. We could spend a whole weak just understanding what i just said it's not about picking up some new thoughts and taking your way of looking at life that you grew up with it's nice and comfortable and then learning that oh well there's three or four planks in that structure that are out of place i'm going to get rid of those and i'm going to bring in three or four planks from the bible and now i'm going to be okay it's overhauling the entire system Of the way we think, because from the instant you came out of the womb, you started trying to understand and interpret and control reality on your terms and not God's terms. Every one of us is that way. We come out of the womb shaking our fist at God. We have an inherited sin nature to which is imputed Adam's original sin. We are born sinners in rebellion against God. And that is the orientation of our thought, the Scripture says, from day one. The heart is deceptive and wicked above all things. Who can know it? There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. So what we've got to do is get to the point where we are willing to do what it takes to think biblically. And I hate to tell you all this, and I hate to do it so early, I've got a few more minutes to go, I've got 45 minutes to go, and after I tell you this, about half of you are going to walk out. But if you're here, and you don't want to learn how to think biblically, you're wasting your time, and you're wasting your pastor's time, and you're wasting the church's time. Because this church should exist for the purpose of teaching you to think biblically. And you can't learn to think biblically if you show up once a week, isn't that right, Pastor? You can't learn to think biblically if you show up twice a week. You can't even learn to think biblically if you show up three times a week. See, so you have to. You learn to think biblically by having your your thinking completely inculcated by the Word of God. So you've been brainwashed from the day you were born until now with the think, thinking of the world system around you. And even if you've been a believer for 5, 10, 15 years, you're like me, and you've been a believer since you were 7 years old, or I was 6 years old actually. And you've been in a good Bible teaching church because of the influence of television, media, friends, peer pressure, all the things we went through in junior high and high school, movies and everything else out there that gave us a certain value system that we just sort of sucked up and absorbed in an unconscious way from the culture around us. We've got a whole lot of unlearning to do. And if you think that you're going to unlearn all of that garbage in an hour a week, then you're playing games with yourself and with God and with your pastor. The Christian life is based on thinking. It is a challenge. It is a challenge to understand the Word of God. So that's what we're talking about. And this second step is thinking through the rationales that are there. And then third to then appropriate those conclusions. Because once we get to that point, and we know that there are crises where we just claim a promise and, and we just move right on. But there are other times when we have to think it through again and again and again and again and again. And six weeks later we feel like we haven't made an inch of progress But we are because we're still sticking with that battle. And eventually we get to a point where when we hit that difficulty, rather than punching the panic button, rather than freezing up inside, rather than going to pieces emotionally, what happens is as soon as we hit that situation and we think of that promise, all of a sudden there is a calm and a tranquility and a stability and a strength that enters into our soul. And we saw that last night with our promise in Isaiah 40:31, that they who wait upon the Lord shall exchange their strength. That is, it's not their strength or power, it's God's strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Now tonight we're going to stay in that same part of Scripture. And we're going to go to another promise, a very well-known promise. I think it was one of the first verses that I ever memorized. I must have been seven or eight years of age, I think, when I memorized this one. My mother always said that the first promise I learned was First John 1, 9. I think that that was sort of a premonition of things to come. But she knew I would need that desperately as the years went by, and that that was a first complete sentence that I ever learned if we confess our sins God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness so she knew that that I would probably need that on many occasions and she was right but the second promise I learned at least that I consciously remember is in Isaiah 41 10 Isaiah 41 10 fear thou not for I am with thee be not dismayed for I am thy God I will strengthen thee Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Now, fear is something that is common to all of us. Now, when I was about six or seven years old, and we moved into this house over here in Meyerland, I remember it was an unfamiliar surroundings, and it would get dark in that house at night. And I was just a little kid. You know, we all think the boogeyman's under the bed or you're going to jump out of the closet or everything. So my mother taught me this promise. You get afraid of the dark. And I would repeat... This promise, I would know that God cared about me because that's what's embedded underneath this is the love of God. And tonight we're going to look at three promises and show how we can take two or three promises in God's Word that relate to the same subject and string them together as we claim those promises. Well, first, at the beginning, what we do is we call a promise. We get it into our mind, and when we do that, we ought to think about it a little bit. And I want to point out some things to you that wouldn't be uh, necessarily obvious from the very beginning as you look at this in your English text. And the first thing we want to note is that first word, "Fear thou not." This is a this is a command structure in the in the Greek. I mean, in the Hebrew, Al plus the. uh, Cal imperfect which is a strong form of negation This is the same expression that you have in the Ten Commandments Thou shalt not So it's not simply fear thou not It's thou shalt not be afraid It is an extremely strong prohibition And the word there is the Hebrew word yareh Which simply means to be fearful In some contexts it means to show respect and awe and respect for someone but in other contexts it means to have that sense of of agitation or apprehension to be fearful if not downright frightened now when we think about fear I don't know about you but over the years as I've thought about fear I said you know there seem to be elements of being afraid that aren't that bad that aren't necessarily irrational for example after September 11 2001 You might, if you were a leader, in a position of leader, there might be a sense of fear that there is a a, a fear that we might be attacked again. Now that is a rational fear. We may be attacked again. Whether you realize it or not, the war that we, that was brought home to us on September 11th, 2001 is a physical expression of that spiritual warfare I mentioned earlier. Because at the root of that is radical Islam, and trust me, no matter what you understand from the press, and what you understand from politicians, all Islam is radical Islam. Islam is not about peace. The term Islam is about submission. And the goal of Islam is to make everybody submitted to Allah. I don't have time to go into it here. I think I did this a couple of years ago when I was first here over in the other building. We did a study on prophecy, talked about Islam a little bit. And the God of Islam, Allah, is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of Islam is, was one of 360 deities that the Arabs used to, to worship, And when Muhammad came along, he just said, you know, we ought to have one instead of these 360, so let's scratch the other 359, and we're just going to worship Allah. And Allah hates the Jews. The God of the Bible loves the Jews. These are not the same person. And I am a firm believer that the person who has energized all religion, and especially Islam, I think Islam is the finest expression of false religion that Satan ever came up with. And I think Satan is indeed the manifestation behind Allah. And the ultimate goal of Islam is to destroy the Jews and to destroy Israel and anyone who stands to support Israel. And so what is going on in all of this Arab Islamic terrorism is ultimately a spiritual issue. And only you as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ with the Word of God have the information to properly understand and interpret what's going on out there. And so in a positive sense, we can be afraid rationally knowing that there is an issue here and we need to take certain steps to provide for the security of our nation. So in that sense, I think there's an element of fear that is good. There's an element of fear, you know, when you're in your job and you have to do something, you have to uh, make a presentation perhaps, that there's a certain element of tension there that drives you to a, a, gives you a better edge, drives you to a little better performance. We're not talking about that kind of a fear. We're talking about the emotional kind of fear that, that, that grabs us, that, that, that freezes us up, that, that causes us to, to, to doubt to to be agitated, to be overwhelmed by our circumstances, to not be able to trust God. This is the kind of fear that is expressed here in this passage. Now, what's the circumstances of this fear? We have the same historical situation in Isaiah 41.10 that we have over in Isaiah 40.31. And the message here, the message throughout this section of Isaiah is the message of comfort. Isaiah 40 verse 1 Give this message to my people Comfort my people with these words Notice This is just a side point No extra charge Notice that comfort Comfort doesn't come by giving, giving them a hug Comfort doesn't come by telling them Now now everything's going to work out somehow You know if, if this too will pass But we don't pass first That's not how the comfort takes place here Comfort doesn't come up with just empty, meaningless, sentimental verbiage. The comfort is that God gives specific revelation in Isaiah 40 and Isaiah 41 related to what? Who He is, what His character is, and how that is going to be displayed in Israel's history. Because what's happening in Isaiah 40 through Isaiah 66 is, Is that Isaiah the prophet who functioned and lived between 740 and 680 BC? Now, let me say that again. He functioned between 740 and 680 BC, so roughly 700 AD, I mean, BC, is when he he functioned as a prophet. And he's going to talk, he's been in the first 39 chapters, he's been warning the Jews that God is going to discipline them eventually and take them out of the land. In Isaiah 40 to 66 he basically places himself among that future generation that is out of the land. And this took place about 540 BC just before they were uh, the the Babylonian empire was defeated by the Persian empire and then under Cyrus the Jews were allowed to go back to the land. So it is put it, so that so that uh, Isaiah is putting himself in the position of the Jews of approximately 540 BC, some 160 years after his own time. So he is prophesying toward that future time, putting himself there in the place of those Jews at the end of that 70 year captivity, and put yourself in the in the place of those Jews. You're outside the land, the place of blessing that God has promised you. You are now a slave. You've been captured, removed from the land. You're brought up in this pagan environment in Babylon. And you know that the leadership in Babylon is now weak. There's corruption among the aristocracy. There's corruption uh, in the king. And not only that, but war is on the horizon. Uh, Babylon is being threatened by the rise of the Medes and the Persians. Under Cyrus, And you know what can happen in war is that you can lose your life, your livelihood, your loved ones can die. There's complete and total chaos. We got a glimpse of that on September 11th, two years ago. And the Jews were living that in this generation. And what they see on the horizon is the rapidly moving armies of Cyrus defeating the armies of the, per- of the Babylonians in one battle after another and so they are fearing for their lives they're fearing for their security they are fearful of their future and it is in this context that they're told to have a hopeful confident expectation in Isaiah 40:31 and then in Isaiah 41:10 God is addressing their fear we all become fearful at times when various circumstances in life the issue is not, do you become fearful? The issue is, what are you going to do with the fear? That's the test. Are you going to let that fear control your decision-making process? Or are you going to control the fear with the Word of God? So there's a command here, a command not to fear. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. And then the second part of the prohibition, in synonymous parallelism, see, this is poetry in the original. And in Hebrew poetry, they didn't rhyme words. They rhymed ideas. So that what you have is one stanza says something, and then the next stanza repeats it in slightly different words. So the second stanza says, be not dismayed. And the Hebrew word there is shatah, which is a synonym for fear, and it brings out the same ideas of apprehensiveness, consternation, dread, fright, and and just everything in between, everything from just a, a sense of unease and apprehension to downright uh, panic where you just freeze up in the situation. Talks about the idea of not being dismayed, not being overwhelmed by those circumstances and giving in to fear. Now, here we need to talk about what fear is. I've talked about fear in some sense is good, but what we're talking about here is fear. As an irrational apprehension, an irrational apprehension of real or imagined dangers or threats. They can be real threats. This country is under a real threat from the terrorism of radical Islam. Don't let anybody deceive you that everything's somehow getting better. We have dangerous enemies out there who want to destroy Christianity. They want to destroy the West. They want to destroy the United States because we support Israel. And they want to destroy Israel. And nothing has happened in the last two years to calm that down. Now, some people are going to say, well, all we did was stir up the ant's nest when we attacked Iraq. Let me tell you, whatever we did would have stirred up the ant's nest. Because, see, what's stirring the ant's nest is Satan. Not us. And anybody who comes along and somehow tries to blame the United States for what's going on doesn't have a biblical perspective on history or on Islam. And only when you have a biblical perspective of history and Islam can you understand what's going on. But I'm just using... the all for that. Just think of all the people who, who are... Uh, were doing all sorts of crazy things because they were afraid that any day now there would be a, an atomic bomb or an atomic explosion, a dirty bomb would go off, all kinds of uh, imagined dangers. People were doing all kinds of things. Just think back to, to the year before that with the turn of the of the millennium at Y2K and how many people sold their businesses, sold their homes, moved to the hills in Arkansas or or up in Colorado or wherever it might be, and they were giving in to imagined dangers or threats, and they were making decisions based on fear. Based on fear. Now, they gave you great rationales for why they weren't being fearful, but they were. See, fear can be related to any issue in life. It relates to the loss of money. It relates to our jobs, our careers, promotion, advancement. We can have fears related to our family. If you're parents, you know the fears that you can have Related to your children. There are so many more dangers to children today than when most of us were children. We can have fears in, uh, romance. We can have fears related to our health and our life. We can have fears about, uh, the possibility of death either for ourselves or for our loved ones. We have fears related to security. We have fears related to acceptance. We have fears related to rejection. You would just think that we are just some of the most fearful people that ever walked the face of the earth. But everybody is this way because fear is a mental attitude sin that is at the very core and root of human rebellion. It is the first sin mentioned after the fall. Fear is the first sin mentioned after the fall. And in Genesis 3.10, we're told that when Adam heard the sound of God in the garden, what did they do? They hid. And when God said, why, why are you hiding? Adam, Adam, where are you? Why are you hiding? What did He say? I'm hiding because I heard the sound of thee in the garden. And I was what? Afraid. See, fear is the core emotion that comes with the vulnerability of being a creature in rebellion against God. Fear is that core emotion that goes with being a creature, a vulnerable creature in rebellion against God. So we are born with an existential fear that controls us. And it has to do with the fact that you are a sinner that's been cut off from God, a creature that was never designed to be independent of the Creator. And so we're cut off from God and isolated. And so what we try to do our whole life is to just cover up that fear. The only resolution to that core fear is the cross. 1 John four seventeen and 18, we're told, By this love is matured. In us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. See, that existential fear is related to the fact that there is a, a core understanding in our soul that we are in rebellion and there's accountability. R.G. Lee was a famous preacher a few generations ago, and he had a famous sermon called Payday Someday. And we all know that judgment day is coming. There's a sense of that in every person. I don't care how atheistic they claim to be at the core of their soul. They know there's a God. Romans 1 says that. And they know that God is going to hold them accountable. And they're doing everything they can to try to suppress that truth in unrighteousness. Romans 1. But 1 John 4 gives a solution. There is no fear in love. But mature love casts out fear. Because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not matured in love. And that casting out of fear by love starts with an understanding of the love of God that is expressed at the cross. Romans 5 tells us that God demonstrated His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So the way to start dealing with that fear is by first understanding the love of God. And as we get to the second aspect of understanding this promise and these these series of these promises that relate to fear, we're going to understand that what underlies all of this is the love of God. The love of God for the believer. So we see that we're told, we're commanded, mandated not to be afraid, not to be dismayed. And then we get into an understanding of the rationale behind the command. See, I can't walk up to you if you punch the panic button and you're just falling apart inside and your soul is just fragmenting in a million different directions because something horrible has happened and rather than applying the word you're just you're just falling apart. I can't just come up to you and say, Stop being afraid. Just stop it. Right now, stop being afraid. You just it doesn't work like that. What has to happen is those emotions have to be reined in by an absolute truth that is certain in the soul. And so God gives us the basis for that certainty in these two little words that are in the English for. Now they translate a Hebrew word "key," and that Hebrew word means because, and I think if we translate it because, it gives us a greater sense of what God is saying in this verse. Do not be afraid because I am with thee. See how much stronger that is? Don't be afraid because I am with thee. It's not just don't be afraid. It's don't be afraid because I am with thee. Now, he is addressing not just an individual. He is addressing the Jews. And he is saying, don't be afraid, I'm with thee. I have a plan for Israel. I promised in Deuteronomy that I would take you out of the land in discipline and I would restore you to the land. So even though you look out on your horizon and every night at the 6 o'clock news you hear about how the troops of the Medes and the Persians are getting closer and closer and you hear about all the tortures and you hear about all the deaths and you hear about all the atrocities, don't be afraid. Because I have a plan for you and that plan is to bring the Jews back to Israel. And look how that was fulfilled. When the Persians took Babylon, They did it in almost a bloodless attack. They just dammed up the Euphrates River. They rerouted it around the city, and they put the troops in on the riverbed, and they came in at night while um, Belshazzar was having a great big party, up in an orgy up in the palace, and they just took over. And there wasn't blood running in the streets as a result of that battle. God was in control. So his first statement is, don't be afraid because I am with you. This refers to what? The omnipresence of God. So we have to go back and think in terms of the characteristics of God the essence of God. He is omnipresent. He is present to all of His creation at all times. But He is present to believers in a more real and intimate sense. Now, we know that we're not Israel. We are not part of Israel. We're not under the Mosaic Covenant. So there's a different application for us. God is with us. He will never leave us or forsake us. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit indwell you as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And God has a plan and a purpose for His life. And He is with you in a more intimate and real way than He was ever with any Jew in the Old Testament. So to us, He is still saying... Don't be afraid, because I am with you. Secondly, be not dismayed. Don't be dismayed, because I am your God. As a Jew, they had a covenant relationship with God. God had entered into a legal contract with the Jews. That's laid out in Exodus. It's laid out in Deuteronomy. God is going to live up to His terms of that contract. He is their God he is not the God of the Hittites, the Babylonians, the Persians. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the God of Israel that brought them through the Red Sea. He is the God who gave them the Promised Land. He is the God who brought them across the Jordan River on dry land. He's the God who tore down the walls of Jericho. He's the God who gave them victory over the Amalekites, over the Amorites, over the Perizzites and Jebusites. He is still their God, even though they're out of fellowship. They're out of the land and they're under divine discipline. So God says to them, don't be afraid because I'm with you. Second, don't be dismayed because I am your God. And then he goes on to build on this with a threefold intensification. The way this is laid out in the, in the Hebrew is very dramatic. He, starts, he says, I'm going to strengthen you Not only that, I'm going to help you. And beyond that, I'm going to uphold you at the right hand of my righteousness. Each one of these statements builds on the one before. It's a dramatic presentation of what God promises the believer in terms of strength and health. And what we see here is, number one, that God is always present with the believer. And second, that God is the personal covenant God of Israel. And then when we get to this last part, He will strengthen us. And here we have the Hebrew word ametz, which means to, to firm up, to strengthen, to fortify, to invigorate, or to harden. God is going to make them tough. He is going to strengthen them. He will be their source of strength. And then the second thing He says is He is going to be their helper. He is going to be their assistance. The Hebrew verb atzar, which is related to One of my favorite words in the Old Testament, the noun etzer. Now, I'm going to risk offending some of you ladies, but I always make this point. The Old Testament, God created Adam. He gave Adam a mission. He said, you're going to exercise dominion over the planet. He says, not only that, but the way that's going to be uh, worked out is you are going to serve me and you're going to work and guard the garden. He wasn't a farmer. He was serving God in the garden, and He was to guard the garden. When God gave the mission, the call to the man, the man was alone. He didn't give the mission to the woman. He gave the mission to the man. He gave the calling to the man. When He created the woman from the side of the man, the reason He created her was because man could not fulfill the mission alone He needed an assistant. Now, we live in a world that has been dominated by feminism that has drilled into most of you ladies and almost all you men that it is somehow a demeaning, secondary, irrelevant thing to be a helper or an assistant. Now, I want you to understand that that is a theological statement. I want you to understand that is a theological statement and it is a blasphemous statement. Because that statement is saying that it is a secondary, irrelevant, non-essential thing to be a helper or an assistant. And yet God says many times in the Psalms, I am your Atser. What an incredible analogy. See, God is our helper. This means that being a helper and assistant is not a second-class job. It's not a demeaning role. You see, Jesus came, I came, said, I came not to be served, but to serve. You see, the Lord came as a servant. Same idea. So if we take apart modern feminism, modern feminism says being a helper, being an assistant, not having your own career, but recognizing your primary mission is to make that man successful in his calling. When feminism says that, what's embedded in that statement is the idea that, oh, this old Christian idea of being a helper and assistant just makes you a, it makes you a doormat, it makes you a second class citizen, you're not important, you're nothing, you know, it's just, you know, male, patriarchal, uh, anti-woman misogyny. We want to get past all that. That's just, that's just an antiquated way of thinking. See, that is, what's embedded in that is a blasphemous concept of the nature of God. Okay, well, that's just a secondary thought of this word to no extra charge this evening. So God says He's our helper. What a fantastic thing. God is going to help us. He is our assistant in times of trouble. Furthermore, says He is going to uphold us. And the word there in the Hebrew is tamak, and it means to, to grasp, not gasp left the letter out there, to grasp, to support, to lay hold of, to hold firmly onto something. God is going to hold onto us firmly with what? His righteous right hand, literally. Not just the right hand of my righteousness, but my righteous right hand. And so when we read that and we see that word righteousness, it brings in the character of God, His integrity, His righteousness, and His justice, and He is saying that what holds us up is His very integrity. That's what undergirds this promise. See, what underlies this is the very character of God. He puts His own character on the line. But it's fine and good for us to say, don't be afraid, don't be dismayed, understand who God is, but when I hit that crisis in life, what do I do? What are the mechanics? What do I do positively? This is negative. Don't be afraid. What do I do positively? I want to skip over to another promise in Psalm 55. Psalm 55. Psalm 55, I think, gives us the positive aspect of what we're supposed to do. The verse reads, Cast your burden on the Lord, and He shall sustain you. He shall never permit the righteous to be moved. As soon as we see that word righteous, we ought to click and go right back to that concept of integrity. This is going to have something to do with God's God's integrity. Well, let's look at what this verse says. This verse says to cast our burden on the Lord. And the word there in the Hebrew is hashalek, which is the hyphial imperative. And that's a causative idea from the verb shalak, which means to throw something, to hurl it, to fling it, to cast it, to take something and just throw it on God. We're just going to get rid of it completely and totally. We're going to cast this burden on the Lord. Now, burden is one of those words that I don't like anymore because it's been so loaded up with all kinds of Christian emotive content that it doesn't mean anything anymore. I've got a burden for you. What does that mean? Well, let's look at what the Hebrew word here is. The Hebrew word is a noun, yahav, and it means a lot or a gift. And it basically refers to something that's been given to you. Now, when we think of burden here, we think of what? We think of something that is negative. And this word all of a sudden takes that negative concept of an adversity, of a trial, of a test, and it puts it in a very positive light, Puts it in a positive context. Two things we ought to note about this. First of all, this word isn't used much in the Old Testament, but it is used in the apocryphal book of Sirach. And there it's associated with the idea of sleeplessness. So it has this idea of a situation or a circumstance that, that can befall us that causes us to stay awake at night. Has another sense, and that's this idea of a gift. Now the idea of gift emphasizes that this is part of God's providential care for us. He puts these situations in our life to give us an opportunity to apply His word so that we can see His faithfulness so that we can grow. And mature as believers. This is part of His sovereignty. He controls the circumstances of our life, so that we can be reminded of the promise in 1 Corinthians ten thirteen that there is no temptation. And the word there for temptation really means a test. It doesn't mean we we think of temptation. We think of being drawn after something negative, uh, something that's sinful, something that entices us, and something that ri, uh, gives rise to our lust. But the idea of temptation in the Greek is the idea of a test. And when we get in this situation, it's a test because we're usually drawn to uh, something we shouldn't be drawn to. But it has the idea of a test. No test has overtaken you except such as it is common to man. No matter what circumstances you may fall into, it's something that is common to all of us. And then the Scripture contrasts the reality of our testing to the faithfulness of God. Now, once again, what's the rationale that's embedded here? Where is this taking us? Drives us right back to the essence of God. He's immutable. He never changes. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is faithful. We can always trust Him in every circumstance. And it's, then the text says He's faithful. He will not allow you to be tested beyond what you are able. In other words, when you hit that test, one of the first thoughts you ought to think of is not, why is this happening? How could God allow this to happen? And say, boy, God's got a lot of confidence in me. God is letting me go through this because He knows I'm able to handle that. I Means somewhere, somehow, I've got the material. I learned it somewhere, and I can handle this. I've just got to go back to my uh, Scriptures so that I can see what my resources are. He's not going to be, allow us to be tested beyond what we are able, but will, with the temptation, make a way to escape that you can bear it. See, he didn't stop there. It didn't say so you can escape. See, it's not claiming the promise that everything's going to be good. It's not trying to find that magic bullet where this ends the process. It's a way to escape so we can endure it. Hupomene in, in the Greek, so that we can stay under the pressure. Now, that's just where you want to be, isn't it? Staying in that situation. Staying under that pressure. Yet, yeah, that's what God says is His Word is going to allow you to cast that burden on Him so that He can what? Sustain us. So that He can astaint, sustain us. And the word there for sustain is the Hebrew word cool, which means to contain, to hold, to abide, to bear up under something To nourish something, and in the pilpal, which is an extremely odd form in the Hebrew, it means to sustain or to cause to endure. So you see how I've been stringing these promises together to build a whole understanding of how we cannot be afraid. He will sustain us, He will never suffer the righteous to be moved, and literally that word means to be shaken. God is the one who sustains us. And we can think of all kinds of examples in Scripture, but this doesn't mean that, that being, not being moved, they might not end up losing your life or losing what you're afraid to lose. But you as an individual and your relationship with God is not threatened. When I read that verse, I always think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they come before Nebuchadnezzar and they're supposed to bow down to the idol. And they said to him, Well, Nebuchadnezzar... Uh, we will never bow down to your idol because our God can deliver us. And so often we stop there because we read the end of the story and we know that God delivers them. But they didn't know that God was going to deliver them. Because in the very next verse they say, but if He doesn't, we still won't bow down to Him. See, they didn't know that God was going to deliver them. But see, God sustained them and in that case... He kept them alive, but in other cases, He didn't. There were many that were martyred. Many prophets in the Old Testament were killed. God did not prevent that from happening. But in that case, He did. But none of them were shaken. They were, they had eternal security. And then in closing, I want to connect this to 1 Peter 5.7. 1 Peter 5.7 picks up on all the same ideas that you have in Psalm 55.12. In fact, what we find out in, in 1 Peter 5-7 is that the word for casting, which is epiripto in the, in the Greek, is the same word that the Jews used to translate uh, shalak in Hebrew. They used that same word for casting. And they, they just and when the Jews translated the Old Testament into Greek, this is the word that they used. Same thing with the word for care. When they translated Psalm fifty five twelve into Greek, this was the same word they used for uh, cast your burden on the Lord. And the idea here, though, in the Greek, merimna, has the idea of worries or anxieties. Worries or anxiety. So it's not just don't be afraid, but we're not supposed to worry. The solution is to cast our worries, to cast our cares on the life, because those cares become a distraction to your spiritual growth. When you're fearful, you can't grow spiritually. When you're fearful, you're out of fellowship. When you're fearful, the same nature's in control. When you're fearful, you're focusing on the problem and not the solution. When you're fearful, you are being defeated by the circumstances of life. Various warnings about the serious nature of cares in the New Testament. For example, in Matthew chapter 13, 22, when you have the parable of the sower, the third soil... Jesus states, "Now he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word. Or this is the second soil. He who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. See the cares of the world, the the worries, the anxieties, the fears of life choke out the word. You become distracted." By the details of life, so you're so all caught up with all the details of life. You're worried about what you're going to do at your job today. You're worried about how you're going to pay your bills at the end of the month. You're worried about your children, what's going on at school, the influences, what they're watching on TV, what their friends are. Tearing. You're so concerned with all this stuff that you forget the main thing, which is your walk with the Lord and what God has provided. And this is exactly what happened in Luke ten, forty-one. In fact, I want you to, in closing, I want you to turn to Luke chapter ten and look at this context. Luke chapter 10. This is where Jesus says to Martha, 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 you are worried and troubled about many things. If we look at that context in verse 38, we read that now it happened as they went that he entered a certain village. That's Jesus entered a certain village, Bethany. And a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. She had her sister called Mary, who also sat at Jesus' feet... And heard his word. So here's the picture. Here's Martha, and she has a sister, Mary, who just could care less about anything else that's going on in life. What she wants to do is sit at the feet of the Lord and learn the word. She, she's realized what many of us haven't realized yet, and that is if I don't learn to think biblically, it doesn't matter what else happens. That's the only thing that matters. And so Martha's distracted with much serving. She's all concerned with with how the food's going to be prepared, how the food's going to be presented. Is there going to be enough food? Is everything going to be prepared just right? She is so caught up with the details of providing that she's lost sight of who she's providing it for and what he's saying. Can you imagine Jesus is in your house teaching and you're so caught up with making sure that the groceries are cooked right that you're not in there listening to what the Lord of the universe has to say? Now, we we easily think of that, but see, that's where most of us live. Because, see, we're not in church, we're not in Bible class, we're not reading our Bibles, we're not memorizing Scripture, we're not studying the Word because we are so caught up with the distractions and the details of life. You see, you have the words of Jesus right here. 1 Corinthians 2.16 says, but we have the mind, the thinking of Jesus Christ. And you have it right here, and it's not the person of Jesus, but it's the thinking of Jesus. It's not just those red letters, folks. It's every word in this book is the thinking of Jesus Christ. And we spend most of our time so distracted by the cares, the details of life that we're not spending enough time in His Word. So the issue is to make a priority out of His Word. And so Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried. See, that's cares. That's Merimnao there. You are worried and troubled about many things. But one thing is needed. So you're all caught up with all this stuff. You've lost sight of the priority. One thing is needed. And Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken from her. You see, when you die, you can't take anything with you but the doctrine that you've learned. You can't take anything with you but the truth of God's Word that is in your soul. And when you die, that's all that is matters. It doesn't matter how many toys you have. It doesn't matter how successful you were at your job. It doesn't matter what else you did in life. The only thing that matters is what you take with you in your soul, the Word that is in your soul. And if you don't get your priorities right, then you become distracted by the cares of life. And so what we have to do is to cast our burden upon Him because He will sustain us. Why does He sustain us? Because He cares for us. Let's bow our heads together in closing prayer. Our Father, we do thank You for this challenge from Your Word this evening. To realize that we are so often overwhelmed and distracted by the cares of details that are ultimately energized by the fears and the worries of life. We are commanded not to be afraid, not to worry. Philippians 4 tells us, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Isaiah told us that you will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusted. Indeed, we can have peace, tranquility, contentment when we are focused on you and on your word. And it is because you have provided for us, you are in control, you oversee our life, and you care deeply about us. Father, I pray for each one here that you would challenge us with the importance of knowing your word, knowing promises and claiming them. But we also pray, Father, that there may be someone here this evening who is unsure of their eternal life or uncertain of their eternal destiny. And that they would take this opportunity right now just sitting there in the pew to make that decision that will determine their eternal destiny. Scripture says all you need to do is believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. You don't need to walk an aisle, raise your hand. You don't need to make a bargain with God, reform your life, or do any, anything else. Scripture says Jesus Christ did it all. He paid it all. When He finished, He said, It is complete. It has all been done. Nothing can be added to it. All you need to do is accept the total package. By trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, you instantly gain eternal life. That can never be taken to you. You can never lose that salvation. Father, we just praise you for our salvation. Praise you for all the provisions that you have given us in your grace. And we pray that you would just continue to challenge us with your word, that we might continue to advance stage by stage, step by step, to spiritual maturity. We pray this now in Christ's name.